Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. This week, we saw the loss of the Big Ten football and the Pac-12 football schedules for the fall. While other sports were impacted, none is as consequential as the loss of football games and therefore football revenues are to both of these conferences. The Big Ten averages about $50 million plus dollars per year from its media revenues for each school. The Pac-12, not quite so much, but they average less than half of that, but still these are substantial media dollars for these schools. The question everybody seems to be asking is, does anybody get paid if we don't have a college football season? To answer that question, I've invited Patrick Crakes to the podcast. Patrick is the principal of Crakes Media Consulting, a strategic advisory firm focused on insight discovery, content rights acquisitions and negotiations, distribution strategy, brand identity, content creation, relationship management, audience segmentation, and business operations across TV, digital, sports, and music. He's the former Fox Sports Media Group Senior Vice President of Programming Research and Content Strategy, and he also has an area of expertise in the future revenue potentials of RSNs, also known as regional sports networks. Patrick will walk us through where the expenses are in producing a broadcast, the distribution challenges along the way, and how a media company like Fox builds an audience, excuse me, an offer to a conference to be the exclusive media network for that conference. This should be a fascinating look into the inner workings of media rights, and Patrick will try to explain if anybody indeed does get paid without the Big Ten and Pac-12 having a football season. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Basics. How, does, how much does it cost to produce an event for a school? Let's say it's a football game. What does it cost to produce a football game? So a Power 5, you know, um, uh, college football game can cost anywhere probably from somewhere from, you know, 50000 to to 100 and some odd thousand, depending on the level of the game, the kind of stadium we're having. You know, it, 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 production costs, you know, basically um, get scaled. And a camera is a camera within reason. And it's how many personnel are you going to have on the ground? Uh, how much technology do you want to have to cover the game? How many cameras do you want to have? And that's all dictated by the game, right? So an early season game um, between a Power 5 team uh, on the road at, say, you know, a, 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 a smaller conference um, may get less exposure on the production side than some of the made four games um, that we see at AT&T Stadium and others in week one. And certainly something like Ohio State, Michigan, where you're bringing the full production package and you're probably even travel your executive producers even traveling to that game. Right. So so that person is there in the executive uh, on site in the executive control room, overseeing producers, making calls and things like that. So, um, you know, they it's it, it's expensive, but um, but you're always looking to save costs and the type of game, the nature of the game, the time of year dictates the different kind of package you bring uh, to produce the game. That makes sense. And then, of course, you have the other net, other sports, too, that the networks produce. So you've got, you know, soccer and field hockey and basketball. Give us a sense of what those kinds of costs are. 
Um, they can be they can be less expensive. Um, certainly with things like baseball, where you're producing an enormous amount of games, the objective is to get the regular season games as efficient as possible, and then you kind of expand out. Um, for for your playoffs and things like that. So when you have uh, some of these pro sports with long seasons, uh, the NBA, the NHL, and Major League Baseball, uh, scale production, or even college basketball, for example, scale production is really, really important. And you're not necessarily bumping up the level, except in some circumstances where there's a real story to tell or something like that. Uh, football is different in the sense that there are less games. Many of the games are important. By the time in college football, by the time you get to November, for all the top, the teams that are in the top 20 that might have an opportunity to enter the college football playoff, every game is crucial. So uh, production expenses tend to be more expensive on a per game basis for football, uh, simply because of the nature of the season. And that's also one of the things that gives football its unique value. Um, every sport brings value in a different way. The volume of the NBA is very, very important. It's a long season, programming content is there for network partners and for distribution partners to be able to say, look, this content is here, it's, 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 it's a long season, it gives you something to program and, and, and an audience follows it. With football, there's an intensity about the small amount of game inventory. In particular, in college football, the nature that if you lose more than one game, it's very challenging to get back into the picture for a national championship. So you bring a different production philosophy to that. And the intensity uh, uh, you know, just doesn't flow out to, into the fans or into the teams. It flows out into the production crews and the costs you associate with it. So producing football is different than others because of, you know, the nature of the size of the stadiums, but also the nature of the schedule, which dictates a different production approach as you get closer and closer to the end of the season. What are the typical numbers of people who might be on site producing a, a major college football event like Michigan, Ohio State, let's say? Well, it's, so what's interesting about that is you could say in the hundreds, right, easily, but advances in remote production, ability to um, utilize technology, to lever um, personnel, not necessarily on site, is changing that. I mean, I would say in the past two years, it's changed radically. And I would say what we've been, what we've been challenged with with the virus has really changed it. You come out of this new kind of, um, the virus has accelerated, I think, a lot of cost saving and technological levering innovations that we're going to see that were already kind of beginning to happen because media rights are very expensive. Um, and, and production and technology are expensive. So ways to kind of try to make everything more efficient, a huge incentive to do that. Levering technology, not just for producing things on the screen at site, but levering it in a way that saves on travel costs, saves on um, 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 technology investment, um, allows uh, personnel to be able to be less, um, less spread out, less, less, spending less time in airplanes and in automobiles and setting up things and more time focusing, focusing on presentation and quality and efficiency, um, all helps a network pay for its media rights. So that incentive was already there, but the virus has really accelerated that because you can't travel. We, now we have a practical problem. Yes. Even if we wanted to travel people, it's much harder to justify doing it um, and the whole thing is we poke our heads up now, I think, you know, kind of 
you know, not, not evenly, but poking your head up and trying to produce games at site. Like MLS is back at site now. Um, you know, baseball certainly been at site, but they were talking about bringing fans in, um, you know, and certainly with football games where the footprint is enormous, right? Um, you know, you're still going to have a problem with how many people you travel and the controls and things like that. So, so, so the number of people that you have involved in this um, has changed and where they're located has changed and what they're doing has changed. Mm. And that, that evolution is going to continue, I think, for the next three to five years, pushed by the need for cost efficiencies and quality efficiencies dictated by the enormous cost of media rights. Makes total sense. Um, and you look at the way uh, media production has been changed by putting teams in a bubble and the fact that you can do more when you have everybody in one place at one time and you don't have to constantly move, con move people and trucks and everything else around. Yeah, and it's a PR, it's a PR vice president's dream, isn't it though? Because you've got everybody in one place so you can get whatever you need. Yeah, uh, but yeah there are extreme efficiencies to bringing everyone together um, because it's easy to scale and you just run people through the machine. Um, of course, that won't work in practical application when we get back to doing this because of the nature of the business that is being foregone right now, which has to do with at site and ticket sales, which is very, very important in college football and college basketball. Um, and um, that's being foregone at the moment, but there are lessons to be learned from those efficiencies. And, and I think the big story for the next three or five years in, in game production will be all the learning that's come out of this crisis and how it gets applied. I mean, it's always the truth, isn't it? There's a crisis and that's what drives innovation, right? Absolutely. Uh, don't let a good crisis go to waste, right? Unfortunately, it's, you feel cynical saying it, but the truth of the matter is that's how it really works in practical application. Yeah, absolutely. Give us just a quick snippet on back-end costs. Once you produce the game, what does it cost to get it to the, get it to the home or get it to the bar? Oh, with transmission. Well, so that goes into capital expenditures. The, 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 the equipment, right? The infrastructure, the capital infrastructure to take transmission from site, bring it to um, your operation center, insert commercials, do some more production, send it back out to distributors. And then it comes out into from distributors. Most people don't understand. There's like a, there's four or five links going on here between the stadium, back to your operations center, into a net control room where an assistant director is working on inserting commercials and doing other things. The game's being produced at site, uh, but the commercials and other things are being managed and ran inside an operations center somewhere. Then it's going back out to distributors. It's going back up to a satellite or going out on a fiber link to distributors, or then sending it out on their own fiber links back into the head ends to your home. That capital is very expensive, but the good news is, you know, it, it runs, runs into the millions of dollars, but the good news is, is that as you invest in it, you get to amortize those costs over time, right? There is a cost to flipping the switch on, right? But it's nominal compared to something like, um, um, the investment that you have to have to plan into it. So when you when you when you had to upgrade to high definition, for example, one of the funny things that I know that David Hill always used to say was, you know, the the television networks funded the high high definition revolution because they got they got kind of tricked into being forced by the consumer by the consumer electronics folks into into investing all this huge amounts of capital to be able to produce for high definition. And the benefit went to people selling television sets, which is why things like 3D and things like, um, you know, 4K and other things have gone a little more slowly because the networks are, are not so 
interested in all at once having to invest this massive capital, tens of million dollars to change their operation centers and change trucks and change even just what the basic equipment on the field um, all at once again. So, so the answer is it's very expensive on the front end, but it's much more cost efficient once you have it in. But how you manage those investments is very, very important. You can experiment with things like virtual reality, but um, before you really go all in into virtual reality, you have to have a justification to make the millions of dollars of investment to make that a reality on a large scale, which is what big media is all about. I had a chance several times to take a group of students up to ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut, and we got a tour of their 8K studio, which they were trying to actually, you know, get all the way ahead of the curve and not have to do anything else for a long time. And I can't imagine what the costs were, but it sure was a beautiful place to, to broadcast from. Yeah, and you have to do some investment in that, right? Um, you're doing investment in future technologies so you can understand them. So when they, they do become practical, if they do become practical, you're not caught, you're prepared to integrate it seamlessly into your production. Um, but the problem is not every great idea pans out. Mm -hmm. So you have to spend money to be prepared and learn, but oftentimes you will just, there will just be learnings, right? The real true innovative um, wrinkle is still in front of you, but fortunately, because you did the investment in an 8K studio, you understand something. You also understand how expensive it's gonna be. And, and of course it's expensive, but you have to do that. So ESPN, Fox, CBS, NBC, uh, Turner, all the big sports media networks are constantly allocating capital to, to innovation experiments. Yeah, yeah. Right, um, um, you know, trying to do um, a virtual reality presentation of the Daytona 500, which, you know, NASCAR is complicated sport to produce because the footprint's so big, right? Mm -hmm. And doing that kind of innovation, which Fox has been doing for years, experimenting with that, um, may not pay off next season, but at some point, those understandings, being part of the evolution, do pay off, and they pay off on the screen, and they pay off economically because you, the consumer is demanding innovation, but it has to be the right kind of innovation. I used to say when we used to test... Um, 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 all the programs was one of the things that came back was consumers expect technology, but it has to help the storytelling, which all the producers got immediately. And the problem with a lot of this new technological innovation is sometimes the, the downside is you can do practically anything you want if you truly want to. The question is, should you? Yeah. And that's why, you know, the research department can tell you lots of information, but I always said, uh, the research department, there's no substitute for the, the producer's insight and decision-making capability. They're the people who are creative enough to understand how to interlace it and whether it makes any sense. Yeah. It doesn't mean you don't experience, but you know, research is very, very important. You know, I started out in research. I'm a researcher. I ran the consumer research group at Fox Sports for, for, multiple, for you know, nearly two decades, had a very large budget, budget testing everything from price elasticities to Netflix to talent. And the one thing that always came back was, um, you know, you can get research to show you lots of stuff, but at the end of the day, a producer has to figure out whether that helps them tell the story. And, and that's the key. So let's bring it back to the universities now. Okay, we've got these costs. We understand how, how the, um, the uh, sausage gets made, if you will. But now we've got to think about payments to the universities and, and structuring out contracts over a period of, 
you know, eight, 10, 12, maybe even 20 years. How do you go about calculating those? When you're talking about media investments and things like that. So, so from the network perspective, right, there's an opportunity with a college conference and, and it really starts out simply as an economic model exercise. Um, all the disciplines inside the media company uh, produce uh, their opinion, right? How, how they would approach if the property was brought in house, how it would, uh, it kind of starts with how does this fit into our programming uh, portfolio? Right. I often tell uh, investor clients that uh, when you look at um, acquisitions for sports media properties, it has a lot in common with modern portfolio theory on the finance side, because um, everything's got its own place. Right. And it does something for your presentation and for your business. And the value of one property in your portfolio may not be the same in another portfolio. Right. Um, somebody just because you view a property as very, very important to your programming mix, the next network may say we don't need that. So the value to us is really zero. Mm -hmm. Right. It could be a, an enormous value here and zero. So figuring out how that all works is, is the first step. Right. That's kind of the strategy part. If we have this, we'll be able to compete against these other networks. This helps our media partners. This fits in with what we have already. Uh, this is strategic. It's so important that we're relevant with it. Um, you know, something, you know, and power five college football would fit into that, right? There's, there's a small number of sports in the United States, maybe five to seven of which power five college football and basketball behind it um, fit into we're relevant. We have this, we're relevant. If you're going to be a top media network, you have to have that. So you identify the need, where does it fit? How much do we want? And then, um, the economics start getting put together. Well, the programming department kind of figures out how they would distribute it. And then, um, and then the sale ad sales force weighs in with how they would value it. Uh, the research department puts together estimates on, on what they think the content commercial value would be, right? Um, there's opinions made between the research and programming department about what the lift is to the rest of the portfolio on a viewing perspective, because the ecosystem gets bigger as a halo. Some of these larger sports power five and, particular provide a halo to the entire network through circulation because folks are joining just to check out what's going on. Um, the affiliate distribution department, the people who work with the distributors on pricing the channels, give an opinion on whether they believe that the property um, is worth a certain percentage of an increase in a sub fee. In other words, if we get this property, we immediately can turn to a distributor or in the next contract negotiation, turn to a distributor and ask for 20% more, 30% more just for this property. A great example of that would be Fox when they did get Big Ten regular season, Big Ten college football and basketball, they had the right, they went back and they surcharged immediately distributors for it. They had actually, they actually negotiated the right that if you ever got the Big Ten, they'd be able to talk about a surcharge with the distributors. And distributors who will tell you, well, we don't like that, they actually do like investments in channels and the big 10 is a big enough one that they wanted to have that conversation and you could get economics right away and if you can't get them right away certainly there's an opinion about whether you can get them when the contract expires with the distributor and the reason why the distributors are so important is you know there's 70 percent of what the real revenue is produced advertising sales for example for college football is in the billions but the sub fees are more much more than that right there's 60 70 percent Let's explain what a sub fee is for those who don't know. What is a sub fee? So you pay on, if you have pay television, you know, cable, 
telco satellite. You pay a monthly bill, right? Um, and we would call that a subscription fee, okay? So your monthly bill is 80 bucks, right? Over at ESPN, they're getting $9 a month from a distributor. So you have a, a, a your server, your, your, your video provider is Spectrum and you're paying Spectrum $80 a month and ESPN is in your package of channels along with your broadband and some other stuff maybe. And over and the distributor takes that money and then they take $9 of that and give to ESPN $9 a month times the number of ESPN subscribers they have that have ESPN. And that's called a sub fee. So if ESPN makes an investment in college football, uh, they're thinking about that relationship to their sub fee to these different distributors. And um, that money comes in every month. It is long-term contractual, which is why it's great. Advertising is cyclical. It's a one-year thing. It's dependent upon all sorts of things like the economy and viewing and what advertisers may have as priorities. And even though it's big, it's not multi-year contractual. And that's the advantage of subfees. And subfees are really the most important thing when it comes to pay television. And they're the most important thing really when it comes to the Power Five because they generate most of the economics and they are long-term for the channels to pay rights fees. So, so the affiliate sales department is very, very important. If they say a sport is worth an increase on a sub fee, that's a big, big deal um, because most sports don't do that, but the Power Five do. So um, then production weighs in with costs, right? This is how we would do it. Um, and there's all sorts of other things. The finance department comes in. Uh, do we need, you know, there's, there's talk about, do we need to invest capital? And eventually this model is put together, right? And there's an economic cost associated to it. And, and there's an economic benefit. And then um, there's a presentation, both, you know, moving, a moving, a rolling presentation that goes all the way up uh, to the top of the network, to the top of the company in this case, um, if every kind of layer says this makes sense strategically. So that's kind of how you think about a bid. And sometimes you want something and you do that exercise and you know almost immediately as somebody who was part of that, putting, assembling all that stuff for many years, you know immediately this isn't gonna work. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. And sometimes you take a look at it and go, well, we have to do this. This is really worth going after, right? Yeah. And um, that changes by network, given their portfolio and what they view as their strategic interests. That's exactly what I was gonna say, because it seems like the elephant in the room is, has been the NFL. And when is the but, NFL lights up and then everybody decides, okay, if we're gonna bid for that, then maybe we don't bid for some of these other properties, right? Yeah, yeah. There's an opportunity cost with bidding with tier one properties, right? These, these, these seven to 10, whatever they are. And that's, you have a massive capital outlay. You're on the hook long-term. It's key you get that sub fee long-term hooked up and it's, it's key that your advertising sales on an annual basis look robust. Um, because without it, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. And yes, you can only have so many tier one sports. Um, you have to be very careful where you allocate your capital. So for many of the top media networks, it does start and end with the NFL. But right behind that would be college football and, um, and the Power Five. And, and then the NBAs and the college basketballs of the world, the relationship, the relationship with the conferences is very, very important. And by the way, the Power Five drives the top economics, but the, the other schools that aren't Power Five draft behind them. So if you're in the college football business, take a great example, ESPN, 
it benefits you to create a college football ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so you do deals, not just with the power five, where you're allocating lots of capital to that, but you do other deals with other conferences and distribute their college football as well, because college football is a thing. And now that you have the cornerstone, you can place the rest of the landscape around it. And college football has an incredibly diverse and valuable landscape. So the power five gets all the attention, but the other conferences benefit from the ecosystem they draft off of it not just with distribution but also with advertisers think about if nike's not in the college football college basketball business uh is there a need to sponsor non-power five non non-major conference basketball uh, with 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 shoe contracts or with uniform contracts and the answer is probably not but because you're investing in the pac-12 um, it makes sense to also invest in the WCC. Yeah. yeah. And, and this, this so, so the entire college sports system drafts off these larger conferences because they create a much wider ecosystem, both for the media companies and for the advertisers that makes investment outside of the core giants uh, make sense. So let's, let's now bring it to today. And we're looking at, of course, the Big Ten, the Pac-12, having postponed or canceled their fall sports seasons. How does this get worked out between the colleges and the media companies? Does anybody get paid at this point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so look, you've, you've, so Karen, here's the truth of the matter. It's about getting paid. Yeah. <laughs> and it really is. Uh, all, everybody's budgets are tied to, these, to, to, to college football and college basketball. And, and like I said, the ecosystem really depends upon these larger conferences creating the, um, the, the, the ecosystem, right, themselves by being relevant. So um, it's going to be very complicated, right? So if, you're, if you think about um, how kind of the media system works sports media system works at the very high level for the, for the biggest properties. Think of it as a three link chain, distributor, network, conference slash league, whatever you wanna say promotion. And, and it's like a value, it's a three link value chain where everybody is kind of married together. I mean, it's literally a chain. The distributor sees the value in the content, the channel produces and packages it and gives it to them. And then of course the conference does their thing and holds the games. And the economics start with the distributor who interfaces with the consumer slash the viewer, collects fees or, or, or advertise, you know, collects fees, gives them to the network. The network uses that to spend it on production and then also sells advertising time, which comes in. And then it turns around and gives a rights fee to the conference who then pays for other sports and pays salaries and, and markets the university and does all the other things that sports do, provide opportunities for all sorts of student athletes that aren't tied to these, to these sports. Um, and, um, that relationship is a long-term relationship. So we have a unmitigated um, kind of mini, you know, disaster here uh, to the system that theoret really in reality is short run in the sense that it's going to impact for sure this season. We already know that. But the assumption is next year we're going to be back to normal. And we've got, you know, distribution contracts with channels tend to run three to five years, getting slightly longer. So they're long-term. 
deals with conferences, you know, ESPN's deal with the, I forget, Karen, but I mean, ESPN's deal with the ACC and the SEC have oh, more than a decade both to go. I mean, it's really long deals. The Big Ten obviously did a six-year deal, but even that's a long deal when you think about it. So it gets even, these relationships are not going away. Right. So, um, but if the games don't play, um, you know, the, the conferences guarantee a certain number of games to the channels. The channels turn around and guarantee a certain number of games to the distributors. The distributors are paying because they think the games have value because they think subscribers, consumers, viewers, see these games on these channels along with other content as reasons to have a pay TV bundle. Yep, yep. So they view it as strategic. So they pay a lot of money. If they don't get their games, they worry that a subscriber might say, I don't need this bundle. So they have a remedy to prorate, um, you know, by the number of games they were promised, if they don't get them, you know, they, they, can, they can reduce or even eliminate what they're supposed to pay the channel. The channel also has similar type language to protect it with the conference because it has to. But the truth of the matter is going back to that long-term relationship, what exactly do you do here? Now you could say, look, I'm not gonna pay you anything, which would be in the language of your contract. And that goes distributor to channel and channel technically to conference. But, you know, the distributor knows that they want this content next year. And they may actually have a negotiation next year with said channel and said channel now has this strategic content. Let's say you're a, you're a Comcast and you have heavy Midwest uh, 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 sub, sub homes, you know, in Chicago and Michigan and places like that. And ESPN is you're doing no negotiation next year with ESPN and you don't want to pay them for the big 10 and ESPN's like, well, you're going to, you know, we're going to have a negotiation next year. Um, you know, what do you think that's going to look like if you do this to us? We, we need to figure something out, right? We have a long-term relationship. Um, and even with the channel to the conference, it's even more complicated because um, the conferences, um, you may have a deal coming up with them next year and you want that, con you have a relationship. So, these, so, so the answer is, if you're a distributor, you can't just take it on the chin. But at the same time, there may be ways, there's, there's got to be a negotiation, there's got to be a conversation about how this is going to work. And it may still end up, we're not going to pay you. Right, right. right? And, and, but, but, but typically, there might be a way to find a way around this or to mitigate it or to make it better or to find something else. And then the channel with the conference has the same kind of thing, right? Even though I think it's a little even more complicated. Um, in particular, if you take a look at like the Big Ten, the Big Ten rights are up in what, two years? Yeah. Another year or something like that. So, um, you know, is the answer here that if you're a channel partner of the Big Ten, you're just not going to pay them the rights fee? You probably can do that. Um, are you going to do that? Yeah. You know, the answer is maybe. maybe. I mean, you may not have a choice because um, nobody, you can't blame, nobody anticipated this kind of disruption. Right. And so, that value chain links everyone together um, with the reality of the, how the economics are supposed to flow, but with the reality that these relationships continue into the future, which means there's going to be conversations, negotiations, uh, people are not going to get paid. Um, it's going to be very, very challenging. Um, but the actual final nature of how that all comes together is going to be an, un, is going to be an evolving and ongoing process over the yeah. next couple of months. Wow. Incredibly complicated. I know that you spend your life in this, but for someone 
who is just trying to understand how this ecosystem works. Patrick, this has been an incredibly helpful conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, Karen. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So it was a great conversation. <laughs>